0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's going to be part two of that training Q&A, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. And if you guys want your question answered on the podcast, just keep an eye out for that Q&A box I throw up every so often, and I'll let you guys know it's for the podcast. So, first question's from at JJ Rotors, and he or she asks, what's the difference between RIR and RPE, and which should I use? Well, great question. And first, RIR stands for Reps in Reserve, which, again, translates to how many reps you had left in the tank, right? How many more reps could you have done? So an RIR of two means you stopped with two reps in reserve, two reps in the tank. You could have done two more reps. A zero RIR is exactly that, zero reps left in the tank. You could not have done another rep. Now, RPE stands for Rating of Perceived Exertion, which is a one to 10 scale of how hard the set was, just a subjective, how hard was it? Now, a lot of people use them interchangeably in an opposite sense where, you know, an RPE 10 is the same as an RAR 0, right? I hope that makes sense. An RAR 0 is a really fucking hard set that you could not have done another rep, which so, if your your rating of perceived exertion would be a 10 out of 10 because it was super hard. Now, I don't think using them in that way, interchangeably and opposite, um, is such a bad idea. I don't think it's a terrible idea. I just think that they are, depending on the context. So you asked which one should you use? I'm going to give you two different contexts. I'll tell you why one might be better than the other, depending on your context. So for general hypertrophy training, which most people are doing, I think RIR reigns supreme for two reasons. The first reason is that for hypertrophy, what matters most is your proximity to failure, is how close you're going to failure. And that is literally what RIR is. You're literally saying how many reps you had in the tank before you got to failure. And for hypertrophy, what we want is your sets to be within five reps from failure, more like within four reps from failure, I'd say. And so the actual denomination of, you know, uh, uh, describing your set in the context of how many reps you had left in the tank for hypertrophy is a really good idea because that's what you're actually after is proximity to failure within the five to 30 rep range. Now for strength training, so for like strength and power sports, if you're an Olympic weightlifter or a powerlifter and you're doing a lot of your work in that like one to five rep range, I think RIR falls a little bit short and RPE tends to be actually a little bit more of what you're looking for. So if you're doing like a really heavy set of three, man, it doesn't, it's not always the case that if the set was really hard that you couldn't have done another rep. So if you're doing a really heavy set of three, and you call it uh, an, an RPE-8, that does not mean that you can translate that to an RIR-2, and that means that you could have done two more reps. Sometimes you do a heavy set of three, and you absolutely could not have done another rep, but it still wasn't an RPE-10 because it moved you know, pretty well. It wasn't super hard. And so I think when you're working in those lower rep ranges, the subjective feeling of how hard it was, like how did the weight feel, how heavy was it, how difficult was it is actually more useful than the description of how many more reps you could have done. What if you're doing a a one rep max? What if you're doing 95% of your one RM? You probably can't do two reps of that. And so is it always an RPE 10? No, it it, it could be an RPE eight, you know? Um, I think of course there's a a little bit of that blurred line. Sometimes you could, sometimes it's gonna be totally fine if you're using RIR. But I think for strength and power sports, when you're working in those lower rep ranges, the, the subjective feeling of how hard something was, man, how heavy was that? How heavy did that feel? How did the, how fast was the bar moving, right? How fast did you get it off the ground? Like subjectively, how hard was it? I think that that actually tends to be more important the lower your reps go and the more um, you're looking for strength and power than it is, or than how many reps you had left in the tank is for hypertrophy. I think that it becomes more important for hypertrophy in those higher rep ranges because what you are looking for literally is proximity to failure. And for strength, Man, when you're working in those lower rep ranges, sometimes you don't have another rep in the tank, but that doesn't mean it's an RPE 10. And so using them interchangeably is, can get a little messy at the extremes there. Um, so I think for most strength and power athletes, using an RPE scale is probably more of what you're looking for. And then for everybody else who's doing more general hypertrophy, I think reps and reserve is probably your better bet. Your, your, uh, it's, it's the right description of the set for you. Cool. Next question's from Celia Kim. Celia Kim. Yes, and she asks, seeing progress decreasing over the last few months. I took a deload. Should I take another? Man, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I think you did a good. It was a good idea for you to take a deload, take some time off. Is a good. uh, It probably would have been my advice if you said, you know, seeing progress decreasing over the last few months. What should I do? I would have said take a deload. Um, But man, if you took a deload, I would give it a go. I would. I would start again. I don't think taking another week off is necessarily what you have to do. However. Taking uh, back-to-back weeks, something that we would call an active rest phase, is probably a good idea to do once a year. If you're somebody who trains really consistently hard, you know, across the board, across the year, even if you're deloading regularly, I think, man, once a year, uh, taking two weeks out of the gym can be a really, really good idea physiologically. It's really good for your connective tissue and your joints. And so I I don't think that that's off the table here. But I think what is more likely where my head goes is how you're structuring your mesocycle coming out of a deload. And if you're seeing progress decreasing over the last few months, well, first, even before the the construction of your mesocycle, I would say, man, what are your calories like? Are you in a deficit? What are your carbohydrates like? Are they super low? Does your sleep suck? Is your training intensity super fucking high or is it super fucking low? So first, if you're in in a deficit, get out of a deficit. Uh, If your goal is to see progress in the gym, get out of a deficit. Um, Also, I think having more than a low carbohydrate diet and I'm not even shitting on low carbohydrate diets. I think you can absolutely make progress with a low carbohydrate diet. But if somebody's coming to me and they've seen their progress stall or decrease and I see that they've, you know, recently switched to a low carbohydrate diet or they're not just they're just not getting as many carbs as they used to, that will be something that we talk about. So, check on your carbs and see how that is. Also, sleep, man. Sleep is the bottleneck for most people adaptations. Those adaptations don't happen in the gym. They happen the other, you know, 23 hours of the day including the hours you're asleep. Um, and so check on your sleep, man. If you're not getting more than six hours, then you have no business expecting, uh, uh, progress in the gym. Cool. So again, you might be fine. I think a deload week was a great idea. And I think the idea, the, the best thing for you to do is check on your calories, your carbs and your sleep, and then look at the construction of your mesocycle. So start your next block with slightly less volume than you normally do, right? Don't go ham in that first week. So start with less volume, which means less sets. If you're doing normally, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, 12 to 15 sets per muscle group per week, man, start at like eight. And keep uh, somewhere between one and three reps in reserve on that first week. So you're doing a little bit less volume, less sets, and a little bit less relative intensity, a little bit more reps in reserve. The thing is, when you're coming out of a deload, you have this like microcosm of being a newbie again. You're slightly resensitized to the training stimulus. It's like, again, it's like a micro version of newbie gains. And if it was your first day in the gym, you wouldn't, like first day ever, you wouldn't do nearly as much or or go nearly as close to failure because you know that as a newbie, you get really easy gains. So I want you to keep that same mentality coming out, coming out of a deload and saying, man, I can get you know a week of newbie gains, so to speak. I can get a week of easy gains without putting in a fuck ton of work. Now, eventually, because of that repeated bout effect, you'll eventually need to do more. Save that for later in the mesocycle, when you're maybe adding a set here and there, and when to add a set is an entire podcast in and of itself, but start your block with lower volume and a couple reps in reserve. Eek out some easy gains and you'll leave some room in the tank for you to grow into that across the mesocycle. Cool. And what else did I want to say on this? Um, man, if progress is decreasing, again, it's it's one of these things, and I'll just wrap this question up. If your progress is decreasing, you're not deloading. And this is, again, this isn't for you because you said you are taking deload. But if your progress is decreasing, then you're likely or very potentially in an overreached state and you need to deload. If your progress was increasing and now it's decreasing and you've been training for more than eight weeks in a row, you need a deload, Period. And then other things, again, that we would look at is like, you're not eating enough, you're not sleeping enough, maybe it's not enough carbohydrates, um, or you're not working out actually hard enough to see progress, although I don't think this is the case um, because you wouldn't really be expecting progress if this was the case. Great. Next question is from At The Determined Beauty, and she says, does taking CBD oil for soreness negatively impact muscle gain? Ooh, we are about to open a big can of worms. Here we go. My answer is nope. I don't think taking CBD oil for soreness negatively impacts muscle gain, mostly because I don't think it's going to do anything anyway. And that, again, is a can of worms all in and of itself. But let's talk about, let, let, let's just talk about inflammation for a second, right? So soreness and inflammation. Now, let's say, well, we'll dial it back a little bit. Inflammation is this like fucking boogeyman. Everybody's super scared of inflammation. We want to lower inflammation. Do everything we can. Get rid of inflammation. Like, oh, you're inflamed. Take this anti-inflammatory. Eat these anti-inflammatory foods. Like inflammation is crucial. It is imperative for adaptations. When you work out and you break down the muscle, like you're causing inflammation. It's important. That inflammation is crucial for adaptations. And if you take things that are anti-inflammatory. They have been shown to blunt that adaptation effect from training. I think this is why you're asking this. You're saying, okay, if I'm taking this thing for as an anti-inflammatory to reduce, reduce soreness, is that blunting the adaptation that I'm getting from the workout? Now, your hypothesis is correct. Taking things, you know, let's, let's use Advil as an example or other NSAIDs. Taking Advil after your workout will and has been shown to blunt the adaptation effects from training. So this idea of like taking something for soreness always bugs me. Like the only person who should be taking something for soreness is somebody who needs to, who cares more about their performance over adaptations, right? The only reason to take something to become less sore is because you need to perform. If you are a professional athlete and you're in the middle of a season and you are uh, uh, you have a game tomorrow night and a game two nights from now and four nights from now, Mid season, you're not trying to adapt from these from these games. You're trying to recover from these games, get back to feeling pain free, so that you can perform again. Man, that's not the context of your question. Your question, uh, we most people are looking for adaptations. We're not looking for performance because it's not our job. We're not. It's not our job to perform. And so, uh, you know, you're not looking to worry about your you know next workout on Thursday's performance. You're looking to grow and get stronger. You're looking for the adaptations. So taking massive high dose anti-inflammatories, whether it be like a ton of anti-inflammatory foods right after your training or taking an Advil before, during, after, or chronically, not a good idea for workout adaptations. Absolutely not. Now, I don't think CBD oil does much of anything. Uh, I have not seen anywhere near enough research to to make me feel nervous about you taking some CBD oil in terms of blunting the adaptations from your workout. Um, But this idea of Taking something for your soreness always bugs me, man. The whole, like, if you are really fucking sore, if you're chronically really sore, dude, you're training too much, or you're not eating enough, or you're not sleeping enough, like, or you're going too close to failure, you're doing too much volume, too much intensity. Like, you don't need to take something for your soreness. You need to address why you're always so sore, right? The, the, it's serious cart before the horse moment. Um, so yeah, if you're so freaking sore that's that uh, uh, it's inhibiting your life, like man, like let's say you did a fucking crazy leg day and you are you wake up in the morning, you're obliterated. You can barely get out of bed. You totally fucked your shit up. One, I would say you fucked up. You did too much, too, man, too many sets, too much intensity, whatever, you did too much of something. But let's say you had to give a presentation today and you had to be on your feet all day and you were like, okay, I'm gonna take an Advil because I need to feel better because I need to perform. In that context, I'm okay, but you are likely blunting to some degree the adaptations from your workouts. And that's okay in the context of caring about your performance more than your adaptations. But for most people, that's not the case. We're looking for the adaptations. You're literally in the gym to get stronger and build muscle, right? You're not a pro baller who's got a game tomorrow night who really needs to not be sore so he can perform again. Now really quick on, let me just kind of come full circle here. In the context of CBD, I'm not worried about it because I don't think it is a powerful anti-inflammatory that has the power to come in between you and your adaptations, right? That it's going to cause such an anti-inflammatory effect that it's going to blunt the adaptations from the workout. I do not foresee that happening at all, right? If you take some CBD and you notice some benefits, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's sleep, I support the fuck out of you. That's awesome. You should keep taking it if you feel a benefit, 100%. Even if it's placebo, who cares? Like placebo effect is the most, you know, the placebo is the most powerful supplement there is. But to answer your question, again, no, I wouldn't worry about it because it's likely not potent enough as an anti-inflammatory to mechanistically get in the way of adaptations. And I will happily change my mind on that if new research comes out. Man, most of the research that we're seeing is, you know, that shows even remote potential benefits is like with doses of north of 100 milligrams a day. I've been in the CBD world. I've thought, you know, I've I've gone deep into the CBD craze and most of the CBD people are taking is in like that five to 50 milligrams per day. Because it just gets really fucking expensive north of that. But then you dive into the research and you see some of these studies are like 300 milligrams of CBD per day. And you're like, you're you're taking your fucking five milligram gummy that you got at 7-Eleven and you think, oh yeah, I'm going to get all this benefit. Like, (laughs) just very unlikely the case. Now, again, if you feel good taking it, if you feel subjectively like it's helping, go nuts. I totally support you. But I wouldn't worry about it blunting the adaptations. I definitely wouldn't worry about it. And again, I suppose a side note is like, man, taking something for soreness is a massive cart before the horse moment, unless you really need to perform. Cool. Next question. What time are we on? 15 minutes here. Is from Brenda Breaks It Down. And she asks, where do I restart after three months severe illness and major weight muscle loss? Holy crap. I'm so happy to hear you're feeling better and ready to get back in the gym. That's awesome, whatever you had going on, I'm, I'm glad you're on the other side, so happy for you, Brenda, and okay, cool. So let's, a good a good rule of thumb here is if you take three months off, just act like you're at square one. You're not at square one. You haven't lost all the muscle and strength and you have to build everything up all over again, but act like it, right? Do less than you normally do. Act like it was your first day in the gym. Very similar, similar to um, Celia who asked, You know, what to do if she, you know, uh, coming out of a deload, you know, progress is going down, what to do after a deload. Treat yourself like you're a newbie. Do less sets than you normally do. If you normally do three to four sets of everything, start with one to two. Keep at least two reps in the tank on everything. Focus on your technique first and remind yourself you don't need much to grow right now. If you're coming off three months of your illness, you are very resensitized to the training stimulus and just doing a little bit will cause a lot of growth, like The only way to fuck this up is to overdo it. You can really only mess this up by doing too much too fast and being obliterated soreness and having, you know, it taking four weeks for you to kind of get back to feeling remotely okay after your workouts because, you you know, you went ham coming right out of the gate here. I've said go ham twice in this podcast and I don't think ever in my life I've said that. So that's weird. That's like podcast life. All of a sudden words come out. Um, Yeah, man, treat yourself like you're a newbie. Treat yourself like it's day one. Now it's not day one. Right, uh, regaining muscle that you once had is exponentially easier than gaining it the first time. Muscle memory is a real thing, especially only you know after three months. If we're talking about muscle memory from five, 10 years ago, there's still some research that says some of those like myonuclei are going to stick around. Um, but we're only talking about three months here, and we're probably talking about uh, uh, in the context of, of of probably eating you know pretty low calorie. Uh, you probably weren't eating like at your high end of maintenance or God forbid, you probably weren't in a surplus. Like that's just tense. Like you said, you had major weight loss, like you're severely ill. Um, you probably were not eating a lot. So in the context of all of a sudden giving your body more calories and for the first time in three months, getting back in the gym and getting that training stimulus, man, you don't need to do much. You should go into it saying, Hey, when in doubt, do less. I can always do more next week. I mean, that needs to be the ethos that you attack this with. Like do less. Whatever you think, like, whatever you're torn between this and that, like, do less. If you're torn between two sets and one set, do one set. Guess what? You can do two sets next time. The worst thing that can happen is you go in there, you go, you do four sets, you're super psyched to be back in the gym, and you fuck your shit up and you're sore for two weeks, which, you know, at some point, a certain level of soreness, severity actually interrupts or interferes with the adaptation process if you are so fucking sore, that you can't sit on the toilet, that you can't move around without like having, I'm talking about that soreness that is deep, that hurts like a motherfucker. Man, that soreness is actually counterproductive. You want to think of like your body only has so many resources to uh, allocate to certain things. And if your body's allocating a lot of those, the the resources that it would have allocated towards adaptation, it's now allocating them towards this crazy recovery situation where you're, you can't even fucking walk. So you, you know, listen, I, I, I don't want to go too much on a a soreness tangent, but if you are a sore 10 out of 10, that's probably suboptimal. Um, It's probably, you know, causing your body to to use too much of its resources towards recovering. That takes away from some of the resources that would normally be uh, uh, pushing adaptations. So err on the side of doing less. Couple less sets, maybe one to two sets of everything. You can even decrease frequency. You can, if you normally train three or 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 four or five times a week, start with three one to two sets on everything, two to three reps on the tank, technique first. Remind yourself you don't need much to grow, right? Gaining muscle, regaining muscle that you once had is exponentially easier. And you can always do more next week. And last two things would probably be you obviously don't eat in a deficit, right? So either eat at maintenance or a surplus, depending on what you want. I would I would be okay with either depending on how good you feel. If you're just coming out of the of being sick, maintenance. Might be my knee-jerk reaction, but if you're looking to rebuild muscle as quickly as possible, a surplus is your best bet. Eat enough protein and remind yourself you're so resensitized to the training stimulus, you don't need to do that much. Cool. Next question is from Kelsey J. Fit, and she asks, should your deload always be one week? What if you do a push-pull leg split? Now, let's get a couple of terminology or uh, some terminology out of the way a microcycle. So your deload should always be one microcycle. But what the fuck is a microcycle? A microcycle is one round through your workouts. So if you're doing an upper lower split where you do upper lower upper lower in one week across 7 days you train 4 times, one microcycle is one round through those workouts. So your deload should always be one round through your workouts. Now, one round of your workouts in regular life is a week. Like people don't plan their workouts on like a nine day micro cycle where you train five days across nine days and then that rotates every week. It's just super fucking messy. I mean, there's not a person listening to this that is doing that. You're all training. When I ask you what your split is, you're going to tell me it in the, in the context of a week. You're gonna say, oh, I train Monday, Wednesday, Friday in a week, right? Or I train upper lower over the course of the week. So a deload practically is going to be one week of training. Now, a mesocycle. Is four to eight microcycles, which again is four to eight weeks, four to eight rounds through your training. A macro cycle is something like three to five mesocycles. So you have a microcycle, which is a week, a mesocycle, which is, you know, four to eight microcycles or four to eight weeks, and then you have a macrocycle, which is three to five mesocycles. So some basic terminology there. Now, again, yes, the answer is your uh, uh, your deload should always be one microcycle, which practically means one week. If you are doing push-pull legs off push-pull legs, your deload should go through your push-pull legs off push-pull legs. However much time you spend going through the, your cycle of training, that's how long you should spend in a deload. Um, yeah, anything else on that? I mean, yeah. If you guys aren't familiar with what a deload is, go back and listen to one of my earliest podcasts. I think it's the third episode or the fifth episode. Um, basically, it's I think it's called why you, What is a Deload and Why You Need Them. Um, tell you everything you need to know, how to deload, how often to deload, what to do during your deload. It's all in there. So go listen to that episode if you have no idea what I just said. Next question is from Coffee and a View. And I think it's a she. I think she asks, can I do strength training only? and no cardio when I'm in a deficit. I'm still getting eight to 10K steps daily. Abso-fucking-lutely. You do not need to do intentional cardio to lose fat. You just need to be in a deficit. So if you are in fact in a deficit, in the context of the question, you're like, "Uh, do no cardio when I'm in a deficit. So if you are in fact in a deficit, you are already doing exactly what you need to be doing doing intentional cardio. Like, what is the point of, of steps? What is the point of intentional cardio? In the context of fat loss, the point is to burn calories. Like, yes, we're not counting how many calories are burned. And I've talked about that in other podcasts. That's not, the focus shouldn't be the numerical value of how many calories you're burning. But man, the point of getting steps, yes, independently, it's good for recovery. It's good for overall health. It's good for cardiovascular system. But in the context of very simplicity in a reductionist way, what's the point of it in, in, in the context of fat loss? It's to burn calories. So, This is how I will set things up for my online coaching clients. Strength training is super important. Is it directly impacting your fat loss? No. Is it super important for the actual goal that you have, which is like to be toned, to be strong, to have definition, whatever. Yes, it's imperative. It's it's absolutely necessary. Now, outside of that, you need to move. You need to move and you need to modulate your nutrition. You need to create a deficit, mostly through your nutrition, in my opinion, and then also move enough for general health and as a way to assist the creation of that calorie deficit. Now, if you're getting eight to 10 steps per day, eight to 10,000 steps per day, that is a lot. That's great, you are you are active, that's awesome. And if you're doing that without intentional cardio, more power to you. Like, I will prescribe a average step count across the week for my clients, so an average per day. Let's say it's 8,000 steps per day, uh, so 56,000 steps per week, so about, yeah, right, so about 8,000 steps per per day. Now, I don't care how you get those steps. If you are somebody who gets them because you're active, you're, you're maybe you're a teacher or you're working, you're a personal trainer, you're working on your feet a lot, great, if you are somebody who sits at a, de- at a fucking desk for eight hours and you need to do some intentional cardio to get there, that's also great. My point is, you telling me that you're getting eight to 10K steps is, is awesome, and the fact that you're doing that with no intentional cardio is great, that's awesome, no problem. But if you were getting 4,000 steps and doing no intentional cardio, and you're like, man, I can't really get up from my desk, I can't move around, then intentional cardio might be right for you because having that block of time allocated towards getting steps would be really helpful, right? And and I guess uh, while we're here, like the reason I love this idea of giving people a step count is because it allows you to move in a way that you like. Like if you like formal cardio, go nuts. You like running, do your thing. You want to chase your dog, just go for walks with the dog. You want to just do errands. You want to, you know, do work around the house, like whatever the fuck you like doing to get those steps, do it. If you hate formal cardio, don't do it. Go for a walk, go, go, go in nature, go for a fucking hike, do what you like, but just freaking move. Right, and 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 frankly, I think a lot of people would do better with this approach. You only have so much time. You only have so much specific time to dedicate to intentional exercise. And I think that that time for most people, first of all, time is most people's bottleneck. Like, if you had all the time in the world, everything would, of course, be a lot easier. But you don't. You have, I don't know, 100 160 to 200 minutes a week to dedicate to training. Right, like, uh, you know, anywhere from like 150 to 300 minutes a week, like. I'd rather most people spend most of, if not all of, if not almost all of that time strength training. And doing enough cardio to make sure that you're moving enough for general health, cardiovascular health, and you know, a little bit of calorie burn to assist the deficit I think is a great way of, of structuring your deficit, right? Um, cool, yes, so yes, full, come full circle here. Yes, you can do strength training only and no cardio when you're in a deficit. If you're getting 8 to 10K steps, that is already like you're doing some cardio. Um, Some people are going to get 8 to 10K steps in their life. Some people are going to need to do intentional cardio to get up above 6,000, let's say. And I think what's important is assigning yourself a step count that will allow you to move in a way that you enjoy and that you can sustain. It doesn't push you into a box of needing to get on the treadmill if you fucking hate it. Move in a way that you enjoy, strength train, use nutrition to create a deficit. How many more questions can we get? I'm going to get two more. We're at 27 minutes here. Let's see if I can get through these two a little quicker. Uh, Christina Soros, hi Christina. She asks, "How does tempo? How how do tempo variations affect muscle hypertrophy?" Okay, quick breakdown. There are uh, you know three or four components of tempo to each repetition, and we'll talk about how that is in context with hypertrophy. You have the concentric phase, and I guess we'll use a a, 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 a bicep curl here. So the concentric phase is the shortening of the muscle. So the concentric phase in a curl would be the actual curling motion from the bottom of the range motion to the top where you're actually flexing um, at the elbow and curling and flexing your bicep. Then you have the eccentric, which is for the most part, the lowering portion of most movements, which is the lengthening of the muscle under load. So, or not under load, whatever. Um, So for a bicep curl, it would be the straightening of your arm, the extension of your elbow, the straightening, the way down Right, The way down, the way down of a squat, the way down of a chin-up, the way down of a a, squat, a a bench press. And then you have uh, two isometric portions of the movement. You have the, isometric just means not moving, means static. So you have the isometric in the stretch position where your arm is fully straight at the bottom of the bicep curl, and you have an isometric at the top where you could potentially hold for a second at the top when your muscle is fully shortened and fully flexed, right? So you have a concentric, which is the curl, eccentric, which is the lowering portion, Isometric, which basically just means static, and you have one of those at the bottom and one of those at the top. So you have four points to that, four tempo points. Now, for hypertrophy, we need to recognize that a lot of people. Okay, so back up. I think a lot of people think of training. They think of the concentric. They think of the bench press, the pushing, the curling, the curling of the of the bar up. What we don't realize, or what a lot of people underutilize or or you know underrate, is the uh, how the eccentric portion. Uh, contributes to hypertrophy. So the lowering portion. So what you'll see is a lot of people, let's say we're, again, we're using the curl as an example. You curl up and then you just fucking let the weight drop and you're not controlling it through that concentric portion or through that eccentric portion. So how does tempo vary? How do tempo variations affect muscle hypertrophy? Well, the concentric is probably most important, right? It is most important for you to to pull with intent, to curl with intent. That concentric portion is is likely the most important. But if you just let the weight fall and you don't control the eccentric, you are missing out on something that's independently hypertrophic. You're missing out on that every single rep across every single exercise. You do that for weeks and months and years, and chances are you're missing out on some tangible gains. So for hypertrophy, I think the best way to think about this is a forceful concentric with a controlled eccentric, and then we can talk about the use of isometrics in a second here. But... When we talk about a controlled eccentric, a lot of people are like, oh, so I need like a five or six second eccentric, right? Like gotta let the dumbbell down super fucking slow. You don't. I mean, studies that have compared using a one to two second eccentric versus a four to six second eccentric have not shown any difference. And in some cases, actually the one to two second eccentric outperforms. So what that means is that you you don't need a four, five, six, seven, eight second eccentric. Now you can, but that's not likely going to be what's best for hypertrophy. that has some other uh, uh, utility in other contexts, other physical therapy contexts. But um, so what I want you guys to take from this is that controlling the eccentric at least one to two seconds is important. Having a four to eight second eccentric, not necessarily important, right? We see that studies that show a zero second eccentric versus a one to two second eccentric, the one to two second outperforms a zero second eccentric. So just freaking control it on the way down. Don't let the weight drop, have a forceful concentric where you curl the bar up and then you let it down in a controlled one to two second manner. Now, the as for the isometrics, man, they can be relevant, but they're not potent in terms of hypertrophic benefits. Like holding the, the dumbbell curl at the top in that flexed position where you're flexing your bicep, not a huge contributor to, to hypertrophy. Where I would say that isometrics play the biggest uh, uh, part is forcing you to actually do full range of motion and increasing potentially that mind-muscle connection. So when you have somebody doing like an isometric hold on a, let's say like a lat pull-down, say you're doing a lat pull-down and you're having trouble feeling the, the lat pull-down in your lats, one of the best things you can do is have an isometric hold at the bottom of the rep. So pull that bar down close to under your chin, almost to your collarbone and flex your back and focus for a second before letting it up with control. So I think isometrics, while they technically do contribute to hypertrophy. I think their best, uh, uh, the most important contribution to hypertrophy is actually fucking forcing you to use full range of motion or you won't actually hit those end ranges where you, need to, uh, where you need to hold that isometric, right? Whether it's in the stretch position or in the shortened position. And also, you know, potential increase in mind-muscle connection. Cool. So quick recap, we have concentric, which is the shortening portion, which is like curling up or standing up out of a squat or pushing the bench press up we have the eccentric, which is the lowering portion, which is like dropping down into your squat or letting the curl, letting the dumbbell come down in the curls, basically the lowering portion. And then we have two points of isometric where basically it's two points of like a static contraction um, or a static portion of the rep. One of them is the, in the stretch position, which is let's say for the dumbbell curl is when your arm is fully stretched. And then another isometric hold, which can be at the top of, you know, after the concentric uh, where you're pausing in that flex position. And it's probably important to have a forceful, intentional concentric, a controlled eccentric, one to two seconds, and maybe sprinkle in some isometrics in there just to reinforce range of motion and mind-muscle connection. Great. Okay, we're 32 minutes in. I said I'd keep these under 30, but I have one more question. um, And it's from Danielle Nelson. And she says, what are some tips for home workout tempo rhythms? And that's why I'm gonna answer it because we just went over tempo. So tips for home workout tempo rhythms to get the most out of limited dumbbell availability. Now I'm going to rattle these off. When you are at home, the first, and you're at home with limited dumbbell availability, right? You don't have super heavy dumbbells, super heavy barbells. The best thing you can do before we'll go into some of these other techniques is embrace higher rep ranges. I know you asked tempo rhythms, and that's definitely one thing you can do. The point is you have less weight, right? And when we're talking about progressive overload, like we have to talk about in the context of how do I make this harder? Like, how do I make this harder week to week if I don't have more weight. So we have to use other things. The best thing at your disposal is just embracing the higher rep ranges. If you've never done a mesocycle with most of your sets in that 10 to 30 or even 20 to 30 rep range, it's it's brutal. It's super fucking hard. It's super fucking hypertrophic. It's going to cause really great gro- growth. And so don't shy away from it, assuming it's not going to do anything. On the contrary, it's probably going to fuck you up good because you probably never do that kind of stuff. So Best thing you can do if you're at home, limited dumbbell availability, is embrace those higher rep ranges. Now, tempo-wise, when we talk about progressive overload, one of the ways you can progressively overload is to do the same amount of reps and sets, but to do it slower. So slow down the eccentric. Slow down the eccentric. Do a three-second eccentric Bulgarian split squat. Do a six-second eccentric push-up, an eccentric chin-up. Those things will fuck you up good, and it will get harder without needing more weight. Now, in the same vein of talking about tempo, I think adding uh, isometrics can be really powerful. So adding a pause at the bottom of your squats, adding a pause at the bottom of your pushups, adding a pause at the bottom of your Bulgarian split squat, like adding a pause in that isometric, in the stretch position, probably better. Um, eh, That's not fair. I think an isometric in the bottom in the stretch position, or let's say you're doing a dumbbell row, uh, uh, I think can be a really powerful isometric on the contraction. So when you pull that dumbbell up to your hip, pausing for a second, flexing your back, focusing on what you're working, can be really powerful. So I think adding those isometrics, I know I just told, I just said, I just basically gave a fucking whole spiel about how they're not super hypertrophic. But man, when you're at home, you need to use everything at your disposal. So adding a pause, super helpful. Some other ways to make it harder without adding more weight is to do something like a 1.5 rep uh, where you're doing like a full squat, then a half squat, then a full squat, and a half squat, and adding like a pulse to each rep. Man, do 1.5 Bulgarian split squats and then tell me that you need heavier weight. You fucking don't. That shit is going to mess you up. And then the, the last thing I would say is using some intensity techniques, um, which is basically just a way of saying making it harder without adding more weight. And I think that my three favorites would be myo reps. And if you guys don't know what myo reps are, it's basically very similar to rest pause, where you do one set, you rest 10 to 15 seconds, which is just long enough for some of that lactate to clear and you to get ready to do another, like, you know, three to seven reps. So maybe you do a set of lateral raises, a set of 15 reps, you put the dumbbells down for 10, 15 seconds, you pick them up again. And you do another set of five and you put them down again, 15 seconds, pick them up again, five more reps, put them down again. The, the, um, mentality being that each of those little myo sets of five reps are all made up of quote unquote, like the last five, the last five effective reps. So you can actually get a whole bunch of sets, you know, kind of in one larger set. So you do a set of 10 to 15, put the dumbbells down for 10 to 15 seconds and you do another really hard five reps and you do that maybe three to five times. And the last two would be using drop sets, which you guys, I hope you guys know what that is. Basically, you're taking a weight um, and you're doing a set until, you know, close to failure. And then you drop the weight, you make it lower and you keep going. So you're kind of using lower weight to push beyond failure. And then obviously the use of supersets, whether it's an agonist superset, which is probably more like a pre-exhaust where you're, you're doing two exercises that work the same muscle group, but likely more practically and potentially more effective using antagonist supersets where you're working two opposing muscle groups like a push and a pull, you know, a push-up and a row or a overhead press and a chin-up or, a, yeah, for legs, yeah, you guys, if you've heard my my previous podcast, you know I'm the saltiest person about leg day supersets, but again, obviously, it works the same, and you can also, even if it's not antagonist, an upper and a lower, yeah, they're not antagonists muscle groups, you know, doing a squat and a lateral raise, but they are two muscle groups that won't interfere, so I think that that can be another way where you can make the most of having less weight at home. All right, guys, I broke my promise, went over, but I wanted to get the rest of these questions answered. So thank you all for listening. Love this Q&A. Definitely gonna do more of these with have, that have like a singular focus. So this was super fun to do training, probably gonna do nutrition or coaching or business business next time. Thanks for listening, guys. See you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram or you can email me jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com or check out the website jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.